0: My name is Matt Moberg. Uh, welcome to church. First time here at the table. We are glad that you are here at the table. Happy Mother's Day. I echo all of Debbie's sentiments, um, both, both seeing those who are celebrating this day and others who are struggling through it. It's all real. It all matters. It all belongs. Listen, before we start this portion of the program, when we dive deeper into the scripture, let me say what I always say. If you hear nothing out of this space that is helpful for you, if nothing out of this space is equipping or empowering as you face the struggles of tomorrow, hear this at least. Who you are is more important than what you do, even if what you do gets more attention than who you are. Your essence, the core story of who you are, it outweighs the external things that you put out there. The likes on Facebook, the productivity that shows up on the stat sheet, The things that say, hey, is this enough for all of that? No, no, no. Here's that sobering space where you look in the mirror and you go like, wait, you're enough as is. You're loved as is. You're sufficient as is. Let's start there. If you hear nothing else out of this space tonight, at least hear that. It is Mother's Day. Um, It's a beautiful day. My mom looked me in the eyes today and she said she would come to church. I don't see her. So I'm trying to, oh my gosh, right on cue. There she is. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, a standing ovation. Hey, get on your feet! That's Tammy Mover, let's go! That is a woman of valor. She, um, you know, I poop my pants every day for the first year after we met, and yet still she shows up. It's amazing. It is Mother's Day, it is that special space on the calendar where we get to pause and recognize the efforts, the investment, the, the cost to self that these women have paid time and time again. I read a stat today, you guys. Becky, tell me if this is true, mother of five. Where by the time a child is 18, moms take on an extra 18,000 hours of work per child. Is that true? And yet you get one day of the year and sharks get a week. I don't understand it, it does not make sense to me. Make it make sense, can't do so. One of the things I'm recognizing, though, is Debbie was sharing a little bit about Mother's Day and recognizing the, it's a three-letter word, mom, M-O-M, but it comes with a wide range of emotions attached. Whether you are celebrating or you are struggling, one of the things that is fascinating to me is that the word mom comes with a pregnancy attached. It leaves a mark on you. You have something from her, regardless if you have a relationship with her. I promised my wife today I wouldn't get like ADHD, Matt Moberg, and go off on a rabbit trail about epigenetics, but I hope y'all will at some point soon, because what we come to find in modern science today is that we are all formed, impacted by our moms, regardless if we have a relationship with them, regardless if we have a name for them. Like our moms, the people we come from, our ancestral line that we spring up out of, it, it leaves a mark on us. It changes who we are. And I want us to think about that a little bit, because for good or bad, for better or worse, burden or blessing, one of the two, it matters. Who you are today is a product of who they were yesterday. And that does call us, as a people who are faithful to what is true, what matters most, it calls us to pay attention to those things, which calls my mind to the man named Alfred Nobel. You don't know him, but let me call your mind back to the motherland, Sweden that is, 1894. Uh, There was a family who owned a factory, and it was set on fire. An explosion went wrong. I want to say it was nitroglycerine, but I'm not sure I'm saying that right. But something went awry. The factory went on fire, and four lives were taken. One of the lives that was taken was a man named Emil Nobel, who was the younger brother of the 29-year-old at the time, Alfred Nobel. Alfred was distraught ruined, wrecked. He was traumatized by the loss of baby bro. And this is a guy who studied biochemistry, who studied the life of explosives, trying to figure out what's the best way to go about this particular medium. And he said, you know what I'm going to do? How we've been doing it is all broke. Let's do something better. I'm going to make a safe alternative to what is. And he did. In 1867, he comes up with this safer explosive that he patented at that point called dynamite. Have you heard of it? Maybe? Yeah. His intent was we need explosives to create better roads, railways, carve out canals, create tunnels. This is important. This is imperative that we figure out how do we go about employing people to do this hard and heavy lift without injuring more along the way. My brother died doing this work. Is there a safer way that people can do this work? And he came up that with dynamite. And it took off. It did just that. When he patented, it, immediately it was a success. People started to implement it, lives were saved, canals were carved, railroads were made, like tunnels were, all of it was good. That's not the whole story though because three years after, in the Franco-German War, it immediately became implemented in the warfare. It was made to be used for cannons, and lives were taken like that, before it was more like that. Then it was brought all the way mainstream into the Spanish-American War. Over and over again, we know the history of dynamite enough to say that thousands thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of lives were taken because of this. Twenty years after Alfred had this heartache of losing his younger brother and creating a safer alternative, which got perverted into weapon of war, another heartache struck this young man's heart. His older brother, Ludwig, had a heart attack, died in France when Alfred was living in France. And the papers heard that some Nobel had died. And what had happened was, after he died, Alfred woke up the next morning trying to find his feet again, and he woke up to the papers reading, not about Ludwig's death, but about his death. The merchant of death is dead. Rewind real quick. I don't know if I made it clear. Let me try one more time. So this is a man who set out in the aftermath of losing baby brother to try to create some kind of safer alternative to explosive reality. We need to figure out how do we use explosives? How do we use uh, TNT? How do we try to create these roads in a manner that doesn't put other lives at risk? And then one morning after the night when his brother died of a heart attack, he wakes up and he doesn't read the obituary of his older brother Ludwig. He reads his own, and it says, the merchant of death is dead. I don't have it in that screenshot, but I'll tell you right now that the following paragraphs were scathing. They talked about how this man alone was responsible for the thousands of casualties that were cost on battlefields across the world. Because of this man and his thirst for blood, his thirst for violence, Alfred's reading all of this, and he's going, that's not what I set out to provide. That's not what I set out to do. He does this moment where he sits with the paper, he sits with the story, and he says, I do not want to be held in this way when I actually am no longer able to be held. When I'm gone, is this really how I'm going to go on? Is my story... Is this really the impact? Intentions to the side. Is this really the seeds of the story that I leave with the people that I'm going to leave it with? Is that how I'm going to remember the merchant of death? He has this profound moment where he says, that's, I have a second chance here. Obviously miscommunication, obviously misprint, obviously it's something that went crazy in the rumor mill of France. But he had the rare opportunity to sit before himself the obituary of him and say, that's not it. I would like a second crack at writing the title of that. It's not Merchant of Death. I want to produce something of peace. I want to produce something that is healing. I want, to produ- I want people who are in my wake to say about my life, that man, he came He saw, he did some things, and he was gone, but in the aftermath, we can all objectively look at him and go, like, it was good. Right now, we're not there. He made a pivot in his life, the rest of his life he gave towards figuring out, like, how do we actually contribute to what is peacemaking? If my life is being read in this particular kind of way, What's the alternative? And at the end of his life, 95% of his finances, 95% of his fortunes, 95% of all that he'd accrued over the years to this death-making machine, he gave to the foundation of the Nobel Peace Prize program, celebrating all different fields that were all producing different kind of benefactory means of enhancing the human society as we know it today. And so now we celebrate the Nobel Peace Prizes, the Dr. Kings, the Mahali, all the, we we pause in our lives to recognize this man that was once named in an obituary accidentally as the merchant of death. He had the chance to sit with us, we read it, and say, that's not how I want my story to be told. Have you ever actually paused to consider how you want your story to be told? Have you ever actually like said like, okay, at some point, my point will come. I'm here for a minute, and then I'm not here much longer. How's that story going to be told? How will I be held when I'm no longer for others, available for others to hold? Man, I was watching, anybody seen that Air movie, MJ, the shoes, Nike? John, it's good, isn't it? There's that moment, though, at the end, where there's that compelling speech that Sonny Vicaro makes, and he looks around the table and he goes, guys, let's be clear. All of us, we've done big things, monumental things in our own lives, business careers, personal relationships, all these different things. You won't be remembered. He might. Michael Jordan might. (laughs) But you won't. You won't be remembered. And for me, outside of all the things that that movie was trying to say, like that one right there was a sobering reminder of, you won't be remembered. By and large, in the general public, none of us will be remembered. But Jen, your kids will. Drew, your kiddos will. The people that you've loved along the way, they certainly will remember you. So when we think about these days like Mother's Day, it's not just some obligatory mark on the calendar that's been forced upon us by Hallmark and others. It's that moment to pause and go like, there are the original influencers in our lives. They will be here for a moment. And yet that the brevity of that moment has shaped our lives. It's left a mark. You know, church folk come all the time. I get an email every once in a while from somebody who wants to talk about can you, can you explore alongside of me the, what happens to us when we die, right? That drives a lot of people to church. What happens to us when we die? And while we are ill-equipped, Debbie and I and everybody else, to actually articulate with any kind of conviction around like, this is what's gonna happen in the afterlife, all the ambiguities around it, not, we can't do that for you. But you have a say in what happens after your life you have a say in what happens when you are gone, how Savona's going to carry your name, how Wyatt and Sawyer will carry my name. We, we do have a say in preemptively aligning our lives to the obituary title that we want. Do we think about these things enough? If you're not going to be remembered, how are you going to be a seed? How are you going to spring into a tree? Mom is not just a title, it's also a task. Dad is not just a title, it's also a task. You get the chance, the rare opportunity of carrying this amazing responsibility of stewarding all of your energies towards how do I enable and equip and empower this one small human being to grow into a flourishing person who lifts the room as they walk into, who is compassionate on those who are left out, who seeks justice for those who are ignored. Who stands up when everybody else walks away? It's not small, it's massive, it's huge. Paul understood this. The Apostle Paul, he is, um, you know it's fast, I'm gonna try not to go on a diatribe here, but there's this moment between Paul and Peter when they're thinking about like, who are the fellows that we need to mentor to take on the reins of the church as it's. It's a patriarchal culture, the church is part of that. And they're looking at all the young men around them. Paul says, you know, John Mark, who is the writer of Mark, he's like, I like him, but he kind of straight at that one point, and so I'm not fully for him. Peter was like, I'm for him, I'll take him. He'll be my protege if you need him to be. And Paul's like, that's fine, I won't fight you for him. But, but there was this moment where Paul went to Ephesus, nearly got stoned to death, where he came across this man who was known by all others in the city and was spoken of highly, a young man named Timmy. I mean, biblically, it's Timothy. This is like Paul's guy. If you read the Gospels front to back, if you read the pastoral letters of Paul front to back, he recognizes that Timmy, Timothy, is the man that he needs. In fact, he appoints him to leadership of one of the biggest port cities of his time, that of Ephesus. He says, Timothy, you're the guy. Yes, you're young. You're not like seminary trained. There's a couple of wrinkles we probably should iron out, but y- you are the one we've been looking for. You're the one I want to pass my mantle of ministry upon. And Timothy steps up. And so 1 Timothy is this letter of like, if you're going to be a pastor, pragmatically, here's what you should know. Do this, don't do that. Be this way, for sure don't be that way. They should be your leaders. Get those fellas, get them out of here. (laughs) They don't have what it takes. I didn't mean to point at you, Jerome, when I said get them out of here. (laughs) Yeah. But in 1 Timothy, you get this glimpse of like Paul passing along these pastoral instructions. Not what you get at 2 Timothy. Second Timothy is a different story. Second Timothy, you know, in First Timothy, you get Paul in a different place too. First Timothy, Paul is like, you know, some people have abandoned me. They're not necessarily for my walk. Second Timothy is like, everybody's left me. Nobody loves God like me. I'm all alone. It's dark. It's got sharp edges. It's intense. It's, it's like pregnant with all kinds of emotions. Paul is near his death. Nero has got him at the edge of his sword. The time has come for Paul to die. He soon will be beheaded, actually. And he looks at Timothy through letter form and says, you're the one still. What's interesting, though, and most people don't pick up on it, is that in 2 Timothy 4, I want to say verse 16, Paul makes it clear that Timothy, who was appointed to be the pastor of this church in Ephesus, he's been removed from his pulpit. We don't know what happened. We don't know what went south. We don't know if he did something stupid. We don't know if something stupid was done to him. But Paul says, you know, I'm gonna have Tychicus be the leader now. But I'm writing you this letter all the same. And in 2 Timothy, Paul writes this letter to this young man, his protege, the one that he calls his son. Like the one, if there's anybody that Paul sings the praises of, and it's important for us to know this, like Paul sings out of the heart of all hearts, Timothy's his guy. And he starts his letter by saying like, Timothy, I'm thinking of your tears. I'm thinking of your pain. I'm thinking of your deficit. I'm thinking about your loss. I'm thinking about you in the discouraged place. As I write this letter... I'm not divorced or disconnected from your pain. I'm writing with that context in mind. And he says, I thank God whom I serve, mind this, as my ancestors did. Paul recognizes that he is another pawn in the long parade that his ancestors once walked upon. He's representing a long line of people who have gone this route. With a clear conscience, as night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. I'm thinking about your tears. I would love to see you. I would love to be filled from seeing you with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith. It sounds like antakupos. Honest. It's not the same word though. And it means like this: unfeigned, not hip- hypocritical. There's no. It's not a fake faith. It's genuine. It's sincere. I'm reminded of your f- for real, nitty gritty, honest doubts, faith, belief, disgust. Anger, angst, answers, questions. I remember I remember that faith which didn't start with you. You didn't just start this on your own. It first lived in your grandma Lois. Tim, you remember when Grandma Lois used to read you those Bible stories with her eyes closed tight while you were tucked into your bed? You remember when grandma used to force you to come on that front row of the church and sing those songs? And you're like, why am I here? But she is so into it. I'm reminded of that faith that I saw in Lois. She didn't know who you would be. She didn't know that you'd come to lead the Ephesian church. She didn't know that you'd be forever immortalized in the scriptures. That Lois who loved you who led you, who gave what she had in the capacity that was hers. Your faith kind of reminds me of grandma. That same faith that was passed down to grandma's daughter, your mama Eunice, who took you on your knee and told you that in the midst of all the insecurities of life, all the ambiguities, all the things we cannot figure out, God is good, we're not crazy. There is hope to be had for tomorrow. Timothy, you've been removed from the pulpit. Timothy, your future is all of a sudden being called into question. What comes tomorrow is unknown. We don't really know, but I will tell you this, it didn't start with you. It didn't start with you. You are participating in a story of struggle. You are participating, matter of fact, What we know from scriptures in one other space, Acts 16 to be particular, is that Timothy's mother, Eunice, fell in love with the boy who was Greek, had no part of the faith. And so Timothy was growing up inside of a house that was, at that time, considered a mixed, problematic. It was, um, he had a Jewish mom who was subscribing to this new faith against the wishes and the will of her husband. Struggle is embedded in the story of you, Timothy. You're not just stumbling upon this for the first time. It didn't start with you. It's been here the whole time. Grandma Lois had it, Mama Eunice had it. This is how it works. When Paul looks at Timothy, who's been removed from his pulpit, and he says, you want to be encouraged, remember that it's not just about you. How you handle the struggle, when you think about how Mama Eunice handled the struggle, and you think about how Lois handled the struggle, speaks volumes into what will come after you. Do we understand properly that it doesn't start with us, doesn't stop with us, but what will people carry from us? I read this last week, and honestly, I'm not trying to put my wife on a pedestal. This is all off script. I shouldn't do this because maybe I should actually. It's Mother's Day. My wife... Every morning, she's up every morning at 6 30. And I'm not saying this is the way you need to be, you know, this is how you pass along them. But she's up every morning and she reads her Bible in front of my babies. Doesn't say anybody else needs to read a Bible, doesn't say this is what you need to do. But I will tell you, every morning it leaves a mark on me because I want to watch Sports Center. And she's over there reading her Bible. And I promise you, there are going to be nutrients in my kid's life that will come to flourish later on where they go like, listen, there's something about reading the scripture. There's something about waking up and, and rerouting myself in something that is true. Above and beyond the scope of my emotions and when I go here and there, to and fro, I'm going to remember something that mom left me with, though she told me, she never told me to carry it with me. She just lived it. It was sincere. People will leave what is fake, they will cling to what is real. Lois, Eunice, sincere faith. It is always appropriate, not just when you realize that your end is near, to actually calculate it and consider what am I leaving for those who are watching me? You could be a mom, dad, you could have no kids, I don't care. Everybody's impacted by everybody. We are all influencers in our own way. How are you walking with those who are walking with you, who are looking at you? Let me close with this. There's a video. I showed this. Actually, now, yeah, let me close with this. Um, I showed this a couple of years ago, and it left me in tears when I first saw it. It's your boss, my boss, Bruce Springsteen on Broadway, talking about his dad and this moment where he went from a ghost to an ancestor, and I would love for you to see it. Just watch this.
1: This is uh, the final days of Patty's first pregnancy. I receive a surprise visit from my father at my home in LA. Now, he'd driven 500 miles unannounced to knock on my door. That's his style. So at 11 AM, we sit, sunlit dining room, and we're nursing morning beers. That's his style. (laughs) It's my father's breakfast of champions when my dad, never a talkative man, right, blurted out, you've been very good to us. And I nodded that, that I had, you know. And, uh, and he says, and I wasn't very good to you. And the room just well, stood still. As to my shock, the unacknowledgeable was being acknowledged. If I I didn't know better, I would have sworn an apology of some sort was being made. And it was. Here in the last days, before I was to become a father, my own father was visiting me to warn me of the mistakes that he had made. And to warn me not to make them with my own children. To release them from the chain of our sins, my father's and mine and our father's before, that they may be free to make their own choices and to live their own lives. We are ghosts or we are ancestors in our children's lives. We either lay our mistakes, our burdens upon them, And we haunt them or we assist them in laying those old burdens down and we free them from the chain of our own flawed behavior. And as ancestors, we walk alongside of them and we assist them in finding their own way and some transcendence. My father, on that day, was petitioning me for an ancestral role in my life after being a ghost for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. He wanted me to write a new end to our relationship and he wanted me to be ready for the new beginning that I was about to experience. It was the greatest moment in my life with my dad. Mm-hmm. And it was all that I needed.
0: Amen. you pray with me? God, we are here for a moment. The psalmist says the word is just a dust in the wind, God. Breathe in, breathe out. We're here. We're gone. It's a moment. But these moments do matter, God. These moments are opportunities where we get to live our lives for the lives that are around us. Or we can be ghosts who lay the burdens that were before us onto the children, onto those who are watching us, after us. Or we could be ancestors, a source of wisdom and wealth that people long after us can say, this is what it looked like to love Jesus in complicated times. This is what it looked like to have a faith when it made no sense. This is what it looked like to hold on to hope when all we felt was pain. Lord, sober us up to actually be aware that it's not all about us. It's not all about us. It feels like it's all about us, but it's not all about us. God, give us wisdom to guide us. In Christ's name, together we all pray, amen. Um,
2: There are a few things that really jumped out to me from what Matt said. And this idea of passing on the mantle and what are you um, giving to the next generation and then there was also something that I don't know if you intended this, that this was more like a, here's your job, Here, come do this. But I took it as like, let the magic happen. Um, something like kind of enchanting about what we get to do as people who are in relationship with one another. And um, it made me think of, there's this Matt Kearney song and in it he has a spoken word artist. And one of his lines is, um, babies who speak half human and half God. And it always, whenever I hear that, I think, man, I want that ability to hear that from other people. Um, not only what the words that we say to one another, but the way that the divine speaks through us. And I'm hoping that that's the mantle I can pass on to my kids. Um, as you pointed out, you know, is it who's sleeping over there? Is it Swear? Oh, okay. Um, but my mom let me do that for me, or she did that for me when I was little. I have core memories of laying in my mom's lap at church and her. Brushing my hair, not making me stay awake for the sermon. I stayed awake today, um, but I think of what—what what is that joy? What is that hope? What is that magic we're passing along? And you know, sometimes I feel like we complicate it, um, but for a child, it's pretty—it's pretty easy. Um, with our kids, we'll talk about, you know, like uh, where do you see God? And one day I was in the car with our kids and. Uh, Jude was like, I'll I'll complete on his own. He's like, hey, mommy, I see God in race cars. And I was like, that's awesome. That's what I want the mantle to be. I want it to be something magical and hopeful. And and I believe that that's something that we have here as well. And I hope that we have the ears um, to hear each other speak that half human and half God. And it makes me think of um, that last night that Jesus was with his friends and he was, he was speaking, but there was something else he was saying that wasn't in the words. Um, and his friends later understood that and that's true of us in our faith as well. But that last night when he was with his friends and remembering everything that they had done for him and what he had done for them. Um, and in this, these last few moments, he took the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. Every time you eat this, remember me. And then in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for you. Whenever you drink this, remember me. And so that's what we come together to do now, to remember Jesus, to remember what it means to be a part of a bigger story, to remember that your life has meaning um, and that all of those after you and before you also have meaning. And so the way that we'll do it is we'll come down on the center and then you'll be given a piece of bread. Then you'll dip that into the cup and then you'll take it and eat it. But before we do that, um, would you stand and pray the prayer that Christ taught us saying, our God who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven.
0: As we close out this space, and we remember that the only love we can offer up to others is the love that we have received ourselves. Will you close your eyes, hold out your hands, and hear these words from the heart of God? Friends, no matter who you are, what you've done, who you love, or what you've lost, where you've gone, or the places that you have stayed, please know that there will always be a seat here for you at the table. Because you are a beloved child of God and beloved, you belong. Happy Mother's Day. Parents, your kids are outside right now, somewhere in the streets. Go get them as soon as possible. Was that the announcement? Did I say it wrong? Yes, is. They're outside. They're outside. That was enough. Okay. We love you guys. Go in peace.